Uh, so I, I guess you could say I've been called a lot of things in my life, but I have never been called Satan, at least to my face. So that's a good thing. Uh, Peter was called Satan. That's, that was a hard thing. We're going to look at that a little bit today. I have been married nearly 24 years, so there is a good chance that Ashley may have muttered the word <laughs> under her breath uh, at one of our more challenging moments, probably earlier on in our marriage. Um, I now have two teenagers, so that doesn't help my odds either um, as to what I may have been called and may have actually been acting like at times. But nevertheless, whether or not I've been called Satan, uh, it doesn't mean that I haven't, like the Apostle Peter, been under the unconscious sway of ideas and urgings that are so wildly off the mark, so short-sighted that they are fundamentally opposed to the will of God. I'm sure I have. I'm sure you probably have too. But thankfully, like Peter, Jesus still calls his friends. He calls his friends. This episode in our gospel today is as tense, and maybe you felt it, as it is brief. And yet it's rich with meaning for us. It's rich with meaning for us individually and for the church. And I think it's important to note here that though Peter is the goat of this story, he doesn't spare himself. Here we are reading this story two millennia later. He humbly relays the details of what otherwise appears to have been a private aside with Jesus. He wants the story to be told, and so here we are telling it, and I think it's good for us. In the preceding verses, Jesus has just told Peter that he is this metaphorical rock on which this new community of faith will be built. Uh, If you weren't here last week, take a few minutes to listen to Hannah's sermon on that text. But more specifically, Jesus calls Peter Petros, a small rock or a a piece of rock with which he will build his church on the Petra, the big bedrock of faith. Peter's divinely revealed confession of Jesus as the Christ. This is how the church will be built, with your life on this confession. And in a letter he will write many years later, Peter takes up that imagery to include others in what Christ has told him, telling the scattered followers of Jesus under his care that their lives too are stones being stacked, so to speak, into a spiritual temple, a living display of God's glory and mercy. Related to this, as we think about what the church means to us, belonging to the church, following Christ means to us, and even about what we do with our lives, I was thinking about something that Angela Duckworth said. Um, she's a, a social psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. She said, she, she told a parable, she said, three bricklayers are asked, what are you doing? The first said, I'm laying bricks. And the second said, I'm building a church. The third said, I am building the house of God. The first has a job. The second has a career. But the third has a calling. This is all of our calling. And Peter passes it along to the people under his care to build and to be the house of God. So, after being renamed, Peter is no doubt feeling good. He's feeling, you know, um, probably built up by Jesus, understandably. I certain would be, certainly would be, but then things go south, as they say. I don't know why they say things go south. I have an idea maybe why that's a pejorative or something. I don't know, but things go south. Verse 21 says this, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. So this, at this moment in the gospel, was apparently new news because, you know, what Jesus may have mysteriously alluded to was now being put in the broad light of day. He's saying this is what will happen, this is where it will happen, and this is who will do it. And it will be absolutely necessary, Jesus says. In fact, he's, when he, we translate it must, Matthew's word is actually dei, that is the will of God. It is the will of God for this to happen. Which kind of points up how strange it is that Peter would react as he does. From here on out in Matthew's gospel, um, the message is going to be cruciform or or cross-shaped, in other words, cross-defined. It's all headed that direction. It's all in light of that, both for Jesus' life and for his disciples. Verse 22, though, says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Never mind that Jesus said, Dei, the will of God. This will never happen to you. And several important things here. First, the part uh, about Jesus being raised on the third day seems to have little effect on Peter. He, he heard the other stuff. He didn't hear the latter stuff. Ever happened to you? Like, you can only hear the one thing. You know, it happens in emails all the time, right? Like, you got to be really careful about the first thing you say in an email because the rest of it, it's going uh, to be shaped by that. So he can't get past the hard part. That's the first thing. Second, Matthew is telling us something about this taking aside that Peter is doing. It's, it's actually uh, giving us a sense of Peter's posture here. Um, you know, the verb for took him aside here, it conveys a power dynamic. There's something going on. The action, it's the action of a stronger party, as perceived, is responding to a weaker one to kind of spare them embarrassment or bring them some, some subtle correction. It's well-intentioned. And it's the same verb, actually, that's used in Acts 18 when Priscilla and Aquila, they explain the way of God more adequately to the popular teacher, Apollos, who had, had not quite, you know, he wasn't quite getting the gospel right. So they pull him aside, they explain things. So, so Peter's explaining some things to Jesus about what he's getting wrong here. And he's well-intentioned, which is important. So it reads with this kind of posture. That's the second thing. Third, where Peter says, far be it from you, in our translation, there's a footnote in virtually every translation that wants to, um, that I think actually gives us the better and clearer translation of the Greek here. Because the word for merciful is there. Hileas. Peter is saying, the Lord will be merciful to you. It can't happen. The Lord will be merciful to you. By extension, you know, he means it's just not possible for this to happen. It's not Dei, the will of God, Jesus. It can't be the will of God. He will be merciful to you of all people. It just can't happen. Far be it from you. And so what we come away with is the fact that Peter's rebuke is friendly, uh, but it's ill-informed. Humanly speaking, maybe the rock, you know, let's, let's use our, our spiritual imagination a little bit here. Um, he might still be a little full of himself. He sees maybe that Jesus is tired. Maybe he's trying to channel his impressive faith on Jesus' behalf now, and maybe he thinks that Jesus just needs a fresh view of mercy. The Lord will be merciful to you. Jesus needs to be encouraged. Maybe that's what's going on. But here's the thing. Peter cannot have imagined what happens next. And we didn't see it coming as we read it. It says, But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. 
You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Understanding Peter's intentions and even tone makes this feel that much more painful, doesn't it? Again, many of our translations are too pedestrian, even for what's being said right here. Jesus didn't merely turn to speak. He twisted. He wheeled around abruptly. And that's consistent with what is about to come out of his mouth. Get behind me, Satan. It's a shocking moment. He's saying, you, Peter, the rock, the Petros, whose inspired faith is the Petra on which I will build my church, you are now in the way. You're in the way. You're a hindrance. Literally a stumbling block, a stumbling stone. And we feel the play on words, but also a trap. A scandalon is what you are. It's a scandal what he's doing. That's where that word comes from. Instead of following as I've called you to, Peter, Jesus might be saying, you're now out in front causing problems. You've got your agenda out in front, your understanding, your interpretation. Worse yet, you're echoing the voice of Satan who tried to get in the way. (laughs) It's a dagger. Because Peter is unwittingly putting in front of Jesus the second and possibly the third temptations that Jesus already faced in the wilderness at Satan's prompting. Jesus is hearing these echoes in what Peter is saying unwittingly. If you're the son of God, you could throw yourself off the temple and you'd be spared. The Lord will be merciful to you. He'll care for you. You have power and divine privilege to get around the cross on your way to power. So you begin to see what Jesus is hearing here and what he's calling out. The cross can't possibly be the right way. It can't be the smart way. It can't be the best way or the most effective way. That cannot be Dei. That cannot be the divine way. Not for you. Far be it from you. And I think we could say that on a human level, Peter cannot reconcile that God's mercy, God's will, could also, be, it could also include Jesus' suffering. Those two, for him, they can't reconcile. And I think that's true for us too. That's another sermon. But the ability to, to see suffering and sacrifice together in the will of God is very difficult to reconcile. But we find out through the whole of the New Testament that this is what the church is doing, what we should be doing. What Jesus knows is this, a greater divine mercy is at work not in spite of, but by means of his suffering. It's not about mercy for him, but for others that will come. There is purpose within his suffering, within his sacrifice. There's purpose within him, the will of God, the Dei working through his death to overcome death itself. By emptying himself, Jesus will fill others. He will uh, make his purpose undeniably explicit in chapter 20. When he declares this, he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus will certainly be resurrected. Again, Peter doesn't key in on that. But 
Before he's resurrected, he will let sin and suffering and death have its way fully. He will be lifted up to expose the very nature of systemic human fallenness that has spread shockingly through the holy city of Jerusalem. That's where it's going to happen. And it's going to permeate the hallowed halls of Israel's temple and synagogues and through right down the middle of their leadership. That's who's going to do it. Jesus will yield himself to it. Beginning with his own life, this way of sacrifice, this way of self-emptying, which is not a byproduct of obedience, this sacrifice, this self-emptying is actually the substance of obedience. Through the cross and out the other side, God ordained weakness and willingness. It will become powerful over all other powers, counterintuitively. Foolishly, it might seem. To the world, the cross is uh, uh, folly. It's foolishness, Paul told the Corinthians. But to those, the cross is saving. It is the power of God. The weakness of God is stronger than the might of men, he will say. And this is the gospel. Peter just doesn't know it, not yet, or trust it. And neither do we. He can't make sense of it. Neither can we. Peter believes in something else. So do we. And that something else is not the mind of God, but the things of men. It's where Peter found himself. It's where we find ourselves. It's understandable. It's even well-meaning, but listen, it's wrong. It's way wrong. It's bad for us, and it's bad for the world. Because we know that the world left to its own devices, it builds its cities and citadels on the foundations of power and self-interest. In every generation, we're invited, you know, culturally to lay our stones on a shifting bedrock that's really right there in the middle of a slot canyon that invites just flash flooding when the rains come. And Jesus painted this picture too. That's not where we're called to lay our stones and to be stones. In fact, it's by faith that we lay them on the foundation of Jesus. By all accounts, it seems that, you know, in our world, this is the way to get on with it. To lay our stones in this way. To build our cities and citadels on power and self-interest. To have the good life even. The American dream. To ensure and to inoculate ourselves against volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And in Jesus' words here, these are the things of man which hold Peter's imagination and ultimately the world captive. And listen, that's why it's satanic. It's a trap. The truth is, Jesus doesn't just want Peter to think differently about Jesus' fate. He wants him uh, him to think about his own life and the calling ahead of him. Turns out the cross is more than a a one-off segue to salvation, though to be sure, it is the means to our salvation. The cross, after Christ has endured it, is becoming an ethos. It's becoming a way of life, a way of seeking and knowing and living right here in the messy middle. It has power in apparent weakness. The cross as a way of life will expose, it will disrupt the architecture of idolatry, of merciless power, selfish wealth, and ambition, and empty pursuits that keep piling on to bury the crown of creation, to bury the children of God, to deceive us, to divert us, and distract us. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man exchange for a soul? In the Christian faith, you often hear people talking about our guiding meta-narrative. Nerdy word for just the big story that's going on. What we see, our interpretation of events in light of where history is going. All of what we hope in, what animates us, our thinking, what guides our philosophy. And we talk about how really everyone has a meta-narrative, kind of, you know, a big story. The way in which each person or group or, you know, they make sense of the meaning and purpose of their lives. It's what gives birth in many ways to ideologies and, uh, and cultures and other things. And, but for us alone, the crown of creation, humanity, this is an inescapable instinct to live our lives guided by some greater story. Truth is, it's wired in us by God. But the cross, so yeah, we have this bigger story, this meta-narrative, so to speak. But the cross, friends, I want to suggest it is a very clear and embedded meso-narrative. It's the middle. It's how we live the big story. It's the everyday right here. A middle story as we live in the world as it really is right now. A world that needs a different kind of human presence, a different posture, different language, a different culture that subverts what's going on in the world that can be called nothing less than satanic. Because what it is doing is unmaking the people of God and the crown of creation. Taking up our own crosses is that middle story in which there is inherent power. Counterintuitive, but true. Most of the time, we don't want to take up the cross, giving and forgiving, serving and being self-forgetful. It's hard. It's too hard, it feels like. But when we do this, when we are forgiving and self-forgetful, mercy and power change the world. One situation, one relationship, one interaction, one day, one week at a time, one opportunity at a time. This is the messy middle. This is our meso-narrative. This is why carrying the cross matters. And this is true not simply because of the inherent power of these ethics, because the truth is, is that sacrifice and self-giving actually are invested with a kind of power when we do this. You don't have to be a believer in Jesus for this stuff to work, so to speak. It's powerful. It's, uh, you know, it's true because cross-bearing, it's not only true because it's, a, it's an inherent ethic that God has designed, but it's true because cross-bearing is how we actually, as we do it, experience a unique union with Jesus. It, it's responding to an invitation to be with him. It's the gift of our connection to Jesus, the suffering servant. It's the most human thing we can do in the messy middle. Do you know this? To make sacrifices to be willing to suffer for others, for the good, which draws us near to the heart of God for others, while also it causes us in the middle of the hard stuff to cling to him all the more, which is an end in itself, to rely on him all the more, unwilling to cling to our things on our terms. Taking up our crosses and following Jesus means our connection to him grows in value to us, while the value of other things diminishes by comparison but it's a step of faith to give and to forgive, to be self-forgetful, to prefer others, 
to do all the one-anothering that we talk about all the time. This is what Jesus wants for us. He wants himself for us. He wants the connection to us. And it comes through the life that he lived, the death that he died, and the resurrection that he has given to us to proclaim through the willingness to die to ourselves that it might be wrought and worked out in our lives in real time, in real relationships, real hard stuff. He wants his purpose in life to be lived in and through us. It's what he wants for Peter. Even the one unwittingly and overconfidently invoking satanic alternatives to the cross. The cross that Jesus will bear, the death he will die for the life of the world. Even for Peter. And you know, you've heard me say this if you've been around Village for a while. I am so glad that Peter is in the Bible. So glad. He's in here for me, for us. Marked by these kinds of encounters with Jesus, Peter's life tells us that following the Lord of, of life, it just, it isn't linear. We mess up. Like Peter, we stumble over ourselves. We become stumbling blocks for others. We are tripped up and trapped constantly by our short-sighted concerns uh, you know, that, that are in our world, that are systemic. We're tempted towards shortcuts all the time. We're discouraged from devotion all the time. We're enticed by the siren songs. They're everywhere. Things of man, as Jesus calls them. Many of them are well-intentioned, and that's the hard part, isn't it? We mean well. But we're ill-informed, seemingly innocent. You know, we can find ourselves just burning all our calories, spending all of our resources for our own personal advancement or self-preservation. It's our default. Jesus is giving us a way out. The church can become a ghetto that exists for its own benefit and not for the lost, for the lonely, for the limping. This is our calling, and it is a cross to bear for the sake of the world. But the call is to another way, you know. It's really just to another way that helps us and our world in the messy middle. It's how the kingdom comes in us and through us. It's how our seemingly upside-down values that make no sense to the world are actually doing some good in the world. It's how we constantly come out of the shadow of our cultural idols. And as Jesus says in our final verse, this is all that is going to really matter when it's all said and done. We're going to see it one day. We're going to see the world we've made, the lives we've lived. Our lives will be weighed on the scales of justice and righteousness. Sacrifice and struggle, if you're going to follow Jesus, friends, is inescapable. I wish it wasn't so. So did Peter, but the world's broken. You feel it. If you don't feel it right now, just wait longer. And it needs, the, the world, the broken world, it needs us to find our true lives in union with the self-giving and self-emptying Jesus through whom mercy has come. Mercy is coming and will come. This is our life. This is our calling to be a part of that. Peter reminds us we're not always going to get it right. But we are called to trust. Let me just say this as I wrap this up personally. You know, I remember when the honeymoon of my conversion, so to speak, wore off. I remember it distinctly. Maybe some of you remember that. When things got harder. I was so disappointed with myself. I thought I was going to be way better at Christianity than I was and am. I found myself disappointed with myself. I was disappointed with Christians. I was disappointed with the church. 
Sure, I'd become a different person in many ways, but sadly, I was still the same person in many ways too. Disappointed with that life ahead. Maybe I thought it was going to be different than this, but you know, it had so many twists and turns and ups and downs and temptations and setbacks. I could not have imagined all that. I thought I was going to be inoculated from it. But it gets harder. We have an enemy. Truth is, I thought I'd always want to read my Bible for hours a day, and I used to. Sometimes I still do. Don't always want to. Maybe that's true of you. I thought I'd make a life of prayer, uh, you know, of more prayer in every season, not less. But sometimes it's the way it goes. I thought the spiritual truths would just bubble up in my soul and they'd spill out on the, pre- the page with increasing profundity and power and all that. I thought that I'd be, you know, an infinitely better person and husband and father than I am right now. I just thought things would be a whole lot easier. Maybe you did too. But what I've come to discover in the messy middle and in the thing that Jesus told us it would be, carrying the cross, right? That it's a lot more like Psalm 23 if you read it honestly and not sentimentally. Some green pastures, some still waters, also some shadowy valleys and some death and some evil. Sometimes a lot of fear. Other times a shocking lack of fear when we should be afraid. Some tables with some enemies. Sometimes our cup runneth over, and sometimes it runs out. But the good news is this, friends, and Jesus is honest with us, and he's loving and merciful to us, but the truth is we are not chasing an ideal, not a religious or a spiritual or a moral one. We are following Jesus. We're following Jesus. We have a shepherd, and following him is a cross. If it's not that, it's probably something else. But the good news is, is it is how our growing union with Jesus and our confidence in Him grow in the power of sacrifice. So I leave you with an image from John 21 that we can bring to the table today. For all of Peter's fits and failures, he's now in the deep grief of his seeming disqualification. He looks up in John 21 from his fishing nets after a night of futility, and what does he see? He sees the risen Jesus making breakfast for him on the beach. Once again, Jesus, he even calls out after their night of futility, and he fills their empty net. Once again, he sets a table in the wilderness of their fear and their weakness and their need. Once again, Jesus says, come and eat with me. This is where our willingness to take up our crosses always begins. This is where it always brings us when we are weary and heavy laden back to the meal, to the invitation, to the self-giving of Jesus that we can touch and we can taste and no one can take it away from us. Brings us back to the burden that he carried and still carries for us and with us. Back to a life of sharing life with him and one another. So that others too can join us in the meal. Can join us in the messy middle. Because that's what it is. But the Lord is with us and for us. And he loves us. Lord, I pray you make this so incredibly real to us in ways that maybe we've forgotten, in ways we've never known. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would know
that regardless of what we've done this week or have not done this week, and we will confess those things, that you love us, and that in many ways, Peter is us and we are Peter, and you are God, and you are loving and merciful, and it's on that that we rely. Bless us today as we come to your table. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.